Good morning, everyone. Turn with me to the book of Mark. This is the first Sunday of the month, and so as is our custom, we celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper. So the emblems, we have them on the table here before us. Uh, The Lord Jesus uh, commanded his disciples, uh, commanded his church, us, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. That's our goal today. That's our desire uh, this morning to remember the Lord Jesus uh, to such an extent that the thoughts of our minds are occupied with him and the affections of our hearts are stirred by him. That's why we're here. We look away from ourselves. We look away from the events of this past week. We put aside the worries of the week coming. We look away from ourselves and we seek to fix our eyes on Christ and we remember him. We're going to do that in a wonderful fashion this morning, participating in the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to prepare our hearts now by turning to Mark chapter 9, uh, with that commandment in view, keeping it in the, in the forefront of our minds, do this in remembrance of me. Now, I want to set the context of Mark chapter 9 and the verses we're going to look at by reminding you, those of you who were here last Sunday, of what we considered together at that time. Now, the last dozen verses or so In chapter 8, these are important. It's important that we review briefly because uh, the first few verses of chapter 9 are not disconnected from, they are not disjointed from the last dozen or so verses of chapter 8. And so in those verses, we're going back a week to last Sunday, we considered three truths. The first is this. Do you remember who Jesus is? It consists of a question. Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And we must answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, who Jesus is. The second truth was and is as follows, uh, what Jesus does. It doesn't consist of a question, it consists of a revelation. And we must believe he reveals That the Son of Man has come to do what? He has come to suffer. He has come to be killed. And he has come, praise God, to rise again. And we must believe. Who Jesus is, a question we must answer. What Jesus does, a revelation we must believe. And what Jesus requires, an invitation we must follow. If any of you would come after me, says the Lord Jesus, what must you do? You must deny yourself. You must pick up that cross, and you must follow me. Three splendid, marvelous truths. With that review before us, come with me now to chapter 9, and follow along as I read from God's holy word, God's inspired word, the first 13 verses. And he said to them, that is, Jesus said to the twelve, the disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter 
and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now remember, do this in remembrance of me. And so we want to remember the Lord Jesus as he is wonderfully portrayed by the Spirit of God in this text. To do that, I'm going to affirm three truths. Just one, two, three. Expand on them a little bit. Three truths concerning the Lord Jesus. And then I'm going to ask and try to answer three questions. And as we do that, we'll arrive at the heart of this text. We'll have the glory of the Lord Jesus on display before us. And that will ready us in heart and mind to partake of the Lord's Supper and remember him as he has commanded us to do. So we begin with three truths. Three precious truths that we learn concerning Jesus in these verses. The Holy Spirit teaches us unequivocally. We cannot mistake them. Truth number one is this. Jesus is the Lord of glory. Jesus is the Lord of glory. The disciples... The three, Peter, James, and John, who are invited to be, to be part of this tremendous experience, this tremendous revelation on the mountaintop, they see two things. And these two things that they behold, a point to affirm this precious truth, this fundamental truth, that Jesus is the Lord of glory. The first thing they see is this, a light. It's right there. We have it beginning really, I guess, in verse 2. They go up the mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. And now enter into verse 3. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. What's going on here? Back in verse 2, that word transfigured, it's the word we get our English term metamorphosis from. It comes from that word. And we all know what metamorphosis is, a larva, a caterpillar enters into a cocoon, transforms into a a butterfly. That's the term that is used here. That the Lord Jesus on the mount, it is temporary. He undergoes a transformation. He experiences a transfiguration, whereby there is, and the disciples behold it, this resplendent light, this dazzling display of his Glory. 
The Bible affirms that God dwells in unapproachable light. And on the Mount of the Transfiguration, we have this precious truth affirmed that Christ is indeed the Son of God, that Christ is indeed most certainly the Lord of glory. And it is seen in this wonderful fact, that which these three disciples themselves saw, this dazzling light, the eternal glory of the Son of God shining forth as the humanity of the Lord Jesus That which had veiled his deity is removed temporarily. And he is transfigured before their very eyes. That is why years later, John writes, We have seen his glory. Years later, as an old man, Peter writes, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He is the Lord of glory. The second thing they see. Not only a bright light, further down, verse 7, they see a cloud. A cloud overshadowed them. Highly significant. Why? We hear that term cloud, and we we should run to the Old Testament, and we should run to the Exodus, and we should remember that at the time of the Exodus, when God brought forth the children of Israel, With signs and wonders, he descended in a cloud to lead them through the wilderness. When they put together the tabernacle, in accordance with the instructions that he had given them on Sinai, a cloud descended and dwelt in what? The most holy place. Later, when they replaced the tabernacle with the temple, again, the cloud descended and filled the most holy place, hovering over the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Centuries later... At the time of the Babylonian invasion, Ezekiel sees a horrid vision. What does he behold? He sees the cloud departing from the midst of Israel. And for centuries, the cloud is gone. And now all of a sudden, Jesus, on this mount, with his three disciples before him, is transfigured. A bright light shines forth, his resplendent eternal glory, and a cloud overshadows him. It is the Shekinah glory. It is a visible manifestation of the very presence of Almighty God. And from the midst of this cloud emerges a voice. This is my beloved son. Mark, strangely, I don't know why, he cuts it off there. But according to Matthew, there's a little more. This is my beloved son in whom I am. Well pleased. That is what the disciples see. They see a light. They see a cloud. They behold Jesus, who is the Lord of glory. Second truth is this. Jesus is the promised prophet. The promised prophet. Right back to verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Mark Mark doesn't include a lot of fluff in this book, does he? He doesn't include a a lot of detail. And so when he does see fit to, to put a detail in there or include something that we might not be expecting, we should hone in on it, focus on it. And we have such a case right there at the outset of verse 2, after six days. Why does he mention six days? Why bother? What does that add to the narrative? 
What does that add to the incident? It adds everything because Jews reading that, hearing that six days, they would think back into what would they think? They would remember Moses. And they would remember Moses at Sinai when God descended and the cloud covered Sinai and there was the trumpet blast and there was the fire and there was the thunder and there was the lightning. And God called Moses up the mountain. He called him into the midst of the cloud. And there Moses waited how long? Six days before God spoke. You see, Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, wants us to do what? He wants us to hearken back. He wants us to draw a straight line between this incident and that incident. He wants us to draw a straight line, connect the dots between Jesus and Moses. And so just as Moses was the object of Pharaoh's murderous intent, so too Jesus was the object of Herod's murderous intent. Just as Moses parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could cross through. So the Lord Jesus calms the waters, the agitated waters of the sea, and calms the storm. Just as Moses provides water in the wilderness in order to refresh the children of Israel, so too the Lord Jesus is the living water. Just as Moses provides manna in order to feed and nourish and satisfy the Israelites' physical hunger, so too the Lord Jesus is the bread of life. Just as Moses receives the law on a mountain, so too the Lord Jesus expounds the law on a mountain, the Sermon on the Mount. Just as Moses climbs a mountain, is there in the midst of the cloud, and his face shines as it reflects the resplendent glory of God, so too the Lord Jesus, his face shines, not because he reflects the glory of God, but because he is the Lord of glory. You see, the moon is not the origin of its light. The moon simply reflects the sun's light. Moses, when he descended from the mountain, they put that covering over his face because his face was too bright, dazzling as it reflected the glory of God, he who dwells in unapproachable light. Well, now we have the Lord Jesus transfigured before them, this light shining forth, but it is not a reflected glory. It is not the moon reflecting the light of the sun. It is the sun itself. It is the Lord of glory. And so Mark is intentionally drawing this line between Jesus and Moses, between this incident and that incident. Why? Because Mark is demonstrating so that it doesn't leave us with with any doubt that we're clear on this, that Jesus is indeed the promised prophet. What do I mean by that? I'm quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, the words of Moses. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And Mark's point is that the promised prophet has now arrived in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of what the Father says from the midst of the cloud. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen. To him, it harkens back to the promise given in Deuteronomy 18.15. That God spoke in ages past, in various manners, in various ways, through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
He is the Lord of glory. And he is the promised prophet. The third truth is this. It's closely connected to the second, and yet somewhat distinct. Jesus is the promised deliverer, savior, we might say. Look at the fourth verse. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking about with Jesus. The question that we should be left asking is this. What are they talking about? Uh, Here we have uh, Moses. Uh, Here we have Elijah. They appear on this mountain uh, with the Lord Jesus who is transfigured. And Mark makes it clear that they are talking with Jesus. They're having a discussion. They have entered into a conversation. What are they talking about? Luke tells us in his gospel account, chapter 9, verse 31, they were discussing his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That was the topic of their conversation. They were discussing his departure. The word departure in the Greek is the word from which we get the term exodus. They were discussing his exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. See, there is a turning point in the ministry of the Lord Jesus here in chapters 8 and 9. Up until this point, he has been primarily concerned with revealing who he is. From this point to the end, he will be primarily concerned as to why he has come. And for the first time, he has stated it clearly in the 8th chapter. Here is why I am here. I must suffer, I must be killed, and I must rise again. And six days later, he ascends the mountain. He is transfigured before Peter, James, and John. All of a sudden, Elijah and Moses, they appear. Why? Because they have this conversation, they have this discussion concerning the very thing that the Lord Jesus has recently revealed, that he is going to Jerusalem. And at Jerusalem, he will be betrayed. At Jerusalem, he will be mistreated. At Jerusalem, he will suffer. At Jerusalem, he will be killed. At Jerusalem, he will be crucified. And at Jerusalem, he will rise again. And here stand Moses and Elijah discussing this wonderful act with Jesus. Why? I think the Spirit's intent is very simple. Moses, we can equate him with the law. Elijah, we can equate him with the school of the prophets, the prophets. You put the two together, the law and the prophets, and what do you have? You have the Old Testament scriptures. And the Spirit is testifying, and the Spirit is making it clear that the entire Old Testament revelation as summed up in the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, they have all anticipated this moment. They have all prepared for this moment. They have all been pointing to this very moment, the advent of the Son of God and what he will accomplish at Jerusalem. He is the promised deliverer. Now, did you get those three truths? I told you, fairly straightforward. Number one, Jesus is the Lord of glory. Number two, Jesus is the promised prophet. And number three, Jesus is the promised deliverer. Now I have three questions for us. Three questions. Question number one is this. What does this mean to Jesus? That's a, that's a good way, very profitable way approach these verses. Okay, there is this this confirmation that he's the Lord of glory. 
that he is the promised prophet, that he is the promised deliverer. What does this mean to Jesus? This entire incident, this entire episode on the mount, as he is transfigured, as Elijah and Moses appear, as the cloud descends, and as the Father declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What does that mean to Jesus? Now to grasp this, grasp this, let me, let us stand back. Just stand back from the text and think of the Lord Jesus as, as he is and as he reveals himself to be. We affirm as Christians that Jesus is God, fully God. We affirm also that he is fully man. We affirm we're orthodox in our confession. We are confessional. We confess what was confessed in creeds of centuries ago, that Jesus is fully God, fully man in one person. Amen. Here's the issue, brothers and sisters. If our understanding of Jesus is limited to that, he is fully God, fully man. We have a problem, a big problem, when we come to numerous verses and incidents in the Gospels. For example, he's fully God, fully man. What does it mean then when I read in the Gospels that he grew in wisdom? If he's God, why does he need to grow in wisdom? What does it mean when I read repeatedly in the Gospels, especially in Luke's Gospel account, that Jesus prayed? If he's God, why does he need to pray? Why is it that I read in Matthew, I think it's chapter 24, that Jesus doesn't even know the day of his return? If he's God, why doesn't he know that? Why is it when I come to the Garden of Gethsemane, I see the Lord Jesus agonizing over his approaching cross and suffering and death to such an extent that he utters that prayer, that cry, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. How do I explain Jesus on the cross and crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If he is God, why does he do any of those things? Have you ever wondered that? Here is something we need to be very clear on when it comes to the Lord Jesus in our understanding. He is fully God. He is fully man, one person. And yet the deity of Christ is veiled. And not only is his deity veiled, but the prerogatives of his deity are veiled. That is why you think back in Mark's gospel account. That is why when the Pharisees and the scribes accuse the Lord Jesus of performing miracles by the power of Beelzebub, Satan, what does Jesus accuse them of? Blasphemy against whom? The Spirit. Why? Because even those miracles he performed, he did so by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is crucial we understand this, brothers and sisters, crucial that we appreciate this, He is fully God. He is fully man. His deity is veiled by his humanity. So too the divine prerogatives of deity are veiled to him. And as a man, he is anointed by the Spirit of God. And as a man, he lives in complete 
total, utter, absolute dependence upon the Spirit of God. And now this man, Jesus Christ, has just revealed what is going to happen at Calvary's cross. He has just revealed that he is going to suffer. He is now turning his face toward Jerusalem. He is turning his face toward the cross, and he is agonizing over it. He knows what is going to happen there. And the thought of bearing your sin and my sin is absolutely repugnant to him. And the thought of bearing the wrath of Almighty God, his Father, is repugnant to him. And he ascends the mountain. And he has transfigured this wonderful display of his essential glory, his deity, but it vanishes. And there he stands, Jesus. And all he is left with are these words ringing in his ears. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What did this mean to Jesus? Oh, get into it, friend. The Father is encouraging the Son. The Father is comforting the Son. The Father speaks audibly. Yes, it's for the benefit of the disciples. We'll see that in a moment. Yes, it's for our benefit. We'll see that in the moment. But look away from yourself. Look to the Lord Jesus. What does this mean to him? As the Father expresses his relationship with Jesus, you are my son. As he expresses his affection for Jesus, you are my beloved son. As he expresses his satisfaction in Jesus, in whom I am well pleased. The Father is encouraging the Son. Because when he descends this mountain, He is moving quickly to Jerusalem. The cross is before him. Its shadow, he's already within its shadow. And he knows everything that is going to befall him there. He knows what he's going to suffer as the sins of his people are imputed to him. And he becomes sin for us. He knows what he is going to suffer as his father abandons him upon Calvary's cross, and he bears the full weight and wrath and righteous indignation of his father. And at this pivotal moment, he hears his father declare, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Dare I, because I don't want us to take our eyes away from, from, from the Lord Jesus, but I, I think it is worth, worth mentioning because... Um, There is wonderful pastoral application in this, brothers and sisters. Uh, You're here right now. You're downcast. You're downtrodden. And uh, your world is is caving in. Uh, Here are are three wonderful truths you must fix your eyes on. Three wonderful truths that you must make the object of your faith daily. Uh, Three wonderful truths that you must revel in. And they are all linked to this glorious reality that we are in Christ. And the Father sees you and me, believer, in Christ. So hear your Father say, as he expresses his relationship with you, you are my son. I know, ladies, sisters, that's a little difficult. You know, the idea of being adopted as sons. You know, we as men, we have to struggle being the bride of Christ. And some of our sisters have to struggle being adopted sons, but it's wonderful. Get past whatever 
obstacle or hindrance that might, might cast in your way. It is speaking of our position. It is speaking of, of how dear and precious we are to him and of our privilege. He expresses his relationship with us in Christ. You are my son. He expresses his affection for us in Christ. Christian, you are my beloved son. And he expresses his satisfaction in us, in Christ, as he declares, in whom I am well pleased. Downcast, downtrodden, take those three wonderful truths and never let them go, that our entire identity, all that we are, and all that flows to us from the Father flows to us through the Son, and we are one with the Lord Jesus Christ in the Father's sight. That's what it means to Jesus. It encourages him. Second question is this. What does this mean to the disciples? There are three of them there, hand-picked. James, John, Peter. Why? I don't know. I think I know why there are three, so that it would be confirmed later in the mouths of three witnesses. Because Christ forbids them at 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 this instance, at this time, at this juncture, he forbids them from mentioning what they've seen on the mountain. But the time will come when they are to declare it far and near, and so as to be confirmed in the mouths of three witnesses, Peter, James, and John. But here we have these three representatives of the disciples as a whole. And what is the Spirit of God seeking to teach the disciples on this mountain? Let me affirm two, two, two things. The first is this. The transfiguration is designed to confirm their thinking about who Jesus is. It is designed, streamlined, to confirm their thinking about who Jesus is. Remember the context, the preceding verses back at the end of chapter 8. Jesus has turned to the disciples as they're traveling in a region known as Caesarea Philippi. Who do people say that I am? And they, they, they offer up three possibilities, three theories, pretty far-fetched. Some think you're, you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some think you're Elijah. Some think you're one of the prophets, perhaps Jeremiah. Who do you say that I am? And Peter utters that wonderful declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There you have it. It, it, is, a, it is a turning point. A huge point in the disciples' learning where the scales fell off, fall off, and there is now this full recognition and acceptance as to who Jesus is. He is the promised one. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And immediately he tells them what? Look at the start of chapter 9, verse 1. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, what happens? Peter, James... Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and up they go, this mountain, and what do they behold? They behold the power of the kingdom. They see this light, Christ transfigured. They see this cloud out of which emerges this voice, this is my beloved son. And through this entire incident, Jesus confirms what? Their understanding of who he is. Secondly, the transfiguration is designed to correct their thinking about what Jesus does. It is designed to correct their thinking about what Jesus does. Because back at the end of chapter 8, Peter, having uttered that, that, that wonderful declaration, you are the Christ, well, Jesus begins to teach them of his approaching death. He speaks to them plainly, I must suffer, I must be killed, and I must rise again. What is Peter's response? He rebukes Jesus. He tries to silence Jesus. 
He does not have the paradigm into which he can fit this idea of the Messiah suffering and dying. He's expecting glory. He's anticipating power. And now Jesus, whom he has acknowledged as the Christ, the Son of the living God, is all of a sudden speaking of his impending death, his impending suffering, the fact that not only will he die, but he will be killed. He will be murdered. And it's too much for Peter to handle, and he rebukes the Lord Jesus. And we see that nothing has changed as we come now to the transfiguration. That as they're on the mountain, and Peter, James, and John are there before the Lord Jesus, they see the light in verse 3, the, the intense white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And then they see who Elijah and Moses appear. They're talking with one another. They know what they're talking about. The exodus that Jesus will accomplish at Jerusalem. And what is Peter's response, the fifth verse? Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I think what Peter is suggesting is this. What I'm seeing right now, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah, this is power. This is glory. We've got Moses. We've got Elijah. We don't need an army. Let's go. The kingdom has come. Let's build three tents. I want to preserve this. I want to, I want to keep this. This is what I'm focused on. You see, it's, it, it, his, his perspective and his understanding, he is still blind as to why Jesus is there. He is still blind as to why Jesus has come. And he's still thinking in terms of power. He's still thinking in terms of dominion. And it carries on after the entire incident is finished. And as they're coming down the mountain, verse 9, Jesus charges them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Look at verse 10. They kept the matter to themselves. Question, what's, what this rising from the dead might mean? They're still not computing it. And they ask him a question concerning Elijah. Verse 11. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. I think their their thought process is pretty simple. They're thinking to themselves, look, we just saw Elijah. We just saw Elijah. We know what Malachi prophesied. We know what the last final prophecy of the entire Old Testament scriptures is. It concerns the advent, the coming of Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, we just saw him. So when's it going to happen? Uh, we think we just saw him. Well, surely we've understood the prophecy correctly. And the Lord Jesus corrects their thinking how, pointing them to two truths which they, which they have missed. The first is this. That Elijah has indeed come. He has come in spirit in whom? John the Baptist. The second truth they have missed is this. That not only did the Old Testament scriptures speak of the coming of Elijah and the coming of the Son of God and the coming of the kingdom, but the Old Testament scriptures spoke of their suffering. And John the Baptist was Elijah. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy. And what did men do to him? Whatever they wanted. And the death of John is a forerunner, a shadow of the death of Jesus. Just as men mistreated John in fulfillment of the Old Testament, 
Elijah come again, John the Baptist, so too they will mistreat the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And so he is correcting their thinking. They're still not going to get it till after the resurrection. But he is correcting their thinking and laying these seeds now in their minds concerning his mission, concerning his purpose, concerning why he has come. That's what this incident means to the disciples. It is designed to confirm their thinking about who Jesus is. And it is designed to correct their thinking about what Jesus does. Now the third question is this. What does the transfiguration mean to us? What does the transfiguration mean to us? I've got a threefold answer here. First, the transfiguration is the object of our it is the object of our faith. It is wonderful to remember that God dwells in unapproachable light. Did you catch that word? Unapproachable light. And to remember that Jesus is that light, and that we approach the one who dwells in unapproachable light in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've quoted him before here. I believe I've quoted this phrase before. Martin Luther, one of my favorites that he ever penned is simply this, do not give me God without giving me his humanity. Do not give me God without giving me his humanity. What did he mean? Do not give me the one who dwells in unapproachable light. Do not give me the one who is a consuming fire apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. The great God who has become flesh and is the mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. Here is the object of our faith. Secondly, the transfiguration here is the object of our love. The object of our love. Hear these words, meditate on them. We cannot appreciate the full significance of the cross until we see the Jesus of the transfiguration upon it. Let me repeat it. We cannot appreciate, enter into the full significance of the cross until we see the Jesus of the transfiguration upon it. That as the Father punishes Jesus upon Calvary's cross. As Jesus bears the wrath of God upon Calvary's cross, who does the Father see? He sees his Son from all eternity, the object of his delight. And it is the Son who gives eternal merit and worth to that death on Calvary's cross, whereby our sins are washed away. The Lord of glory has died for us. Thirdly, here's what the transfiguration means to us. It is the object of our hope. It was the object of our faith. We approach the one who dwells in unapproachable light through Jesus. It's the object of our love. We appreciate the full significance of what he has done because we see him, Jesus, of the, trans- the one of the transfiguration upon the cross. And thirdly, here is the object of our hope. Let me mention these three quickly. Number one, the transfiguration prefigures Christ's return. He will come in the glory of his Father, Matthew 16, 27. Secondly, the transfiguration provides a glimpse of what we will be 
He will transform our lowly bodies to the likeness of his glorified body. Philippians 3.21. Thirdly, the transfiguration provides a glimpse of what we will see. We will see him as he is. 1 John 3.2. Father of Jesus, love divine. What rapture will it be? Prostrate before thy throne to lie and gaze and gaze on thee. What does the transfiguration mean to us? Hear them again. Here is the object of our faith. Here is the object of our love. And here is the object of our hope. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we have Jesus wonderfully displayed, the Lord of glory, the promised prophet, the promised deliverer. And now as Christians, we have this wonderful invitation to remember him. That is to celebrate who he is, celebrate what he has done, and to feast and to eat. For what? For the strengthening of our faith, for the strengthening of our love, and for the strengthening of of our hope. Bow your heads as we pray now and seek his blessing upon the supper. Our Father, we do not presume to come to your table trusting in our own goodness, but in your all-embracing love and mercy. We are not worthy even to gather up the crumbs under your table, but it is your nature always to have mercy. So feed us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ, your Son, that we may forever live in him. And he in us. Amen.